Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Britain feels broken, but how do we fix it? Westminster just doesn't seem to have the answers, but we have found some people who do. Join me, journalist Becca Hudson. And me, the former MP Ed Vasey, for How I'd Fix... From the price of a pint to the housing crisis, this is the show where we take an alternative look at the problems plaguing the nation. And hear practical solutions from those in the know. Catch new episodes of Howard Fix wherever you get your podcasts. Rebuilding Britain starts here. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio on the morning after the most exciting sporting weekend of all time, the most exciting sporting weekend, quite frankly, that anyone can remember. As we awoke this morning to a series of triumphalist headlines in the newspapers, apparently England and Wales have won the Cricket World Cup, albeit with a captain from Ireland. It's all very confusing, isn't it? Uh, It was, however, a magnificent achievement and the most tense sporting battle of all time. And coming so fast off the back of the five-set Wimbledon final between Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer, it was almost too much to take. It was one of those great summer moments that will last forever and it might just make cricket the go-to sport for kids too. Do your children even play the game? Tell us if you do. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, it's the final showdown between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt right here in the news building. It's going to be broadcast live on Talk Radio tonight from 7. We can't promise the same kind of fireworks we had on Centre Court uh, and at Lords, but it will be the defining act in the Prime Ministerial play. Getting down to the wire. 0344 499 1000. Of course, that's not all we have for you this morning. The climate planks that make up Extinction Rebellion have decided to disrupt the traffic in London, Cardiff, Bristol, Glasgow and Leeds this morning by towing in some boats and parking them illegally. I guess private schools must have broken up for the summer, eh? Plus, the day won't be complete without questioning the police about the freedom of the press. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, there's going to be so much to discuss, and of course we want to hear from you this morning, because you are the voice of reason, you are the people that make this show work, and you are the people uh, who have most of the common sense in the world. So the number is this, 0344 499 1000. I'm delighted to say we're joined this morning in the studio live by Stuart Jackson, former Conservative MP and Special Advisor to David Davis when he was Brexit Secretary. Stuart, welcome Good morning, uh, Mike. to Talk Radio. Thank you very much for popping in. Quite an auspicious day for us here at Talk Radio, because of course, tonight, in this very building, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt have their final debate down to the wire. We'll talk about that in a minute, but we can't start the show really, can we, without talking about the cricket? Because that was just quite remarkable. Even for somebody like me, who's not a massive cricket fan, I was watching the tennis, had to switch over towards the end of the tennis, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, and then finally to watch... I didn't even know what was going on at the end of the cricket. Did you? 
Not really. I'd never heard of a super over I before. Uh, uh, you know, a champagne super yeah, over, as exactly. someone might say. I thought they were going to do a kind of, you know, so England get bowled at once and then, then, then just New Zealand get bowled at once and they just go backwards and forwards like sudden death and the first ones to score a run end yeah. up winning. I think it was brilliant because it was still, I think, unexpected. That climax was fantastic. Yeah. But... To see the Prime Minister dancing, I mean, she's going out on a high as a genuine cricket yeah. fan, um, and and I think she enjoyed it with all the other people there. But more broadly, I think it was good because it put aside the economy, Brexit, Iran, you know, all the all the really weighty issues of the yeah. news, and it united the country. I think Whatever so. your point of view, you could cheer on England and Wales, as you say, um, and we are world champions, and that's fantastic news. Uh, we've also had a great summer, mm. and I think anything that unites brings people together rather than divides yeah. is, a, is a great thing. I think absolutely right, and the great thing about it as well was that I think by the time you got to that final kind of act, if you like, the final super over, it wouldn't have mattered if England had lost because it was such a close game, such a great game, that it wouldn't have felt like England had lost anyway. No, and I th also think, you know, the New Zealanders um, were very... Uh, I, I think chivalrous in the way they behaved. Uh, they were very good-natured. They they gave it their all and ultimately just fell short. And I think that is the difference with some other sports. There is still this very old-school school approach of gamesmanship in cricket. Mm. And that came to the fore yesterday. It was also nice to see people from different backgrounds in the UK coming together in the national colours to win. And as I say, it, if you weren't if you weren't happy and cheering at the end of that game, you, you got a heart of I stone. mean, there were, of course, one or two people trying to make political capital out of it. I was a bit disappointed with Jacob Rees-Mogg, to be honest, coming out and saying we didn't need Europe to win it. Well, that's all very well, but why make bother making the point? Do you know what I mean? And in fact, because the captain is from Ireland, actually, you did need Europe to win it. So, <laughs> so you know, why bring that in? Do you know what I mean? And there were lots of people after that saying, well, you know, so-and-so was born in, uh, in, in the Caribbean, another player was born uh, possibly in South Africa. You know, I don't think any of that matters anymore, no. does it? I mean, it's 2019. If they're playing for England, they're playing for England. I, I think either to bring Brexit into it, uh, and I think Jacob was probably being a bit uh, dry in his humour, yeah. a bit tongue-in-cheek. You think he'd been at the pink gins? He might have been somewhat over-refreshed at the bar, <laughs> but but knowing Jacob, that's unlikely. He, he just probably was ha pulling someone's leg and yeah. people took it the wrong way. Equally, it's not an issue about diversity and background particularly it's a it's a sporting occasion when you play for your country you put aside you know your background and 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 your religion and everything else because you're playing in the national colors so i think you know people should calm down about it it, it wasn't a political occasion it was a, a an occasion of fantastic national unity and what this country needs after three years of frankly, miserableism and managerial <laughs> miserableism decline is, good. Is, is, you know, happiness, uh, optimism, a forward-looking approach. And that gave us that yesterday, albeit for a fleeting moment. Because optimism is a great weapon, I think, in the, in the, in the fight against the negativity of, of some people in this country who would like to tell us that everything's going to hell in the handcart, that the world is never going to be the same, that you're going to wake up one morning when you've left the European Union and suddenly the sky is going to be dark, the sun is no longer going to shine and you're never going to be able to do anything uh, that you used to be able to do. Well, yeah, because we remember this. We're old enough, I think, Mike, in the we 1970s. Are, we were told... Yeah, when it that... really was not very good. Well, it was, it was. 
<laughs> but remember what happened. We were told in the 70s when we had soaring inflation, interest rates, the country was run by the trade unions, it was wet all the time, it was awful. We were told, well, just calm down. It's all about the, the uh, managed... Uh, management of decline, the orderly management of yeah. decline was the civil service mantra in the 1970s. And then along came Margaret Thatcher and turned us into a world beater. You know, I think we need someone, I would say this, like Boris, who's, you know, he's he's not always... You are a Boris Johnson supporter. I am a Boris... We may as well make that clear yeah. before anybody asks. I'm a, I'm a Boris supporter. Don't get me wrong, I like Jeremy Hunt. I came into Parliament with him. He's a nice man, he's diligent, he's a patriot and, and he's a good, good egg. But we need this gung-ho, get-up-and-go enthusiasm and optimism to, to, as, as an antidote to this awful miserabilism we've had in the last three years. Yes, absolutely right. But what do you say to people who will no doubt say it again tonight when he's up against Jeremy Hunt? There is a kind of a, a strange, almost a magical kind of quality that, that some broadcasters and some pundits seem to be affected by. Like, for example, the last um, ITV debate where some of them actually said, oh, yes, we thought that Jeremy Hunt won on points. I didn't see that at all. I really didn't see anything coming out of Jeremy Hunt other than a slightly kind of small-mindedness. And I'm not trying to be mean to him, but, you know, the way that he kind of went after Boris on particular points, you know, will you resign if it doesn't work? You know, will you support the US ambassador? All questions which, to most people, really don't mean a row of beans. You know what I mean? No, it's it's picking fluff out of your own navel. Yeah. I mean, they're not talking about this in the... Kim Darrick, frankly, in the dog and duck in Peterborough. They, no. they, they really couldn't give a monkeys about it. They want someone who's going to bring back a degree of optimism, who's going to say to the EU, we want to be friends, we want to work together, we want to cooperate, but actually we want to control our own country, we want to make our own laws, our borders and control our own money. And that, you know, hundreds of countries across the world do that and, and it shouldn't be beyond the wit of man to do that. But there is a sort of Boris derangement syndrome in the media, in parts of the there media. There is, no question. Uh, and I think that's, i tell you why, because he's a heretic. I, I wrote about it in the paper last week. You know, he's Eton, he's Oxford, he's, you know, best clubs, Daily Telegraph, Brussels. And yet, frankly, he takes the mickey out of Brussels and he takes the mickey out of the ruling classes and the establishment. And they absolutely hate it. Yeah, so he's, he's an a, apostate. He's, he's a bit of a maverick, isn't he? he? Is. And you don't really know what he's going to say. I mean, there are those who say that that may not be the best quality for being the prime minister of this country. But after having had somebody who, with the best one in the world, can be described as dull for the last three years, it'd actually be quite refreshing, certainly for people like me. And in the business I'm in, we need to be refreshed from time to time. And I don't mean just by the odd glass of champagne. <laughs> but, you know, we need somebody to bring us a bit of levity sometimes, a bit of, you know, a pricking of the pomposity, particularly exactly. of the people in Brussels. I think basically the British people are fed up with boring corporate suits and yeah. more of the same. Right. And just like in America, do do people think uh, Trump is a wonderful guy and he's kind and loving and helps his granny across the road? Probably not. But if he's delivering 4 or 5% growth, more jobs, he's dealing robustly with Iran, with China and others, they're going to vote for him. Yeah. Equally with Boris, he's again a disruptor. He's got some unorthodox approaches to dealing with the European Union and he's got some great ideas. At the end of the day, though, he's basically a social liberal. So yeah. a lot of these people should be agreeing with him mm. because he, he follows their values values and beliefs. But they don't like him because, um, you know, he, he basically ridicules them and he said, you failed. And the ruling elite in this country do not like to be told by the ordinary punters mm. that they've got it wrong. No, exactly right. And I think he represents as well a kind of a, a rebellion 
uh, albeit a very small rebellion, of people who are fed up with this, as you've described it, sort of men in suits, the middle management approach to politics, where you've seen over the course of time, they want to erode all of the extremes in politics. And I'm not saying that we want extremism in politics. We want, we want differing views. You know, when we had Cameron and Blair, people complained that everybody was the same and there was no way to choose between the two policies. They were centrist, they were very kind of straight down the middle, they were very slavishly establishment. And the European Union has become this kind of very grey organisation which doesn't like anything extreme at all, as a result of which they've now got the most extremist parliament in Brussels that they've ever had. Well, exactly, and, and for a good reason in many respects. They visited penury and destitution on southern Europe yeah. to an unprecedented level. I mean, we're constantly being told, for instance, that you know young people want to stay in the EU because they want to travel, use their rail cars and study and all that. Great. If you're a Greek youth in Athens, yeah. where you've got 50% youth unemployment, mm. you're actually not so keen on the policies of the EU. No. Ditto in Portugal, in Italy... And Spain. In Spain. Yeah. So... You know, Europe, Europe is a closeted, uh, undemocratic, uh, plutocratic elite in Brussels and Strasbourg. And, you know, we, it doesn't mean we don't like foreign people. You know, we're going to continue to travel and cooperate and work with them. But we just don't want them to run our country. And I don't and think also, that's unreasonable. And also, the, the, the people who are on the other side of the argument, the Remainers... Uh, for want of a better phrase, have become, you know, almost fascistic in the way that they talk down to anyone who doesn't agree with them, in the way that they try to point out that, you know, they're the only ones that know, they're the only ones that understand the way that trade operates, you know, as if everybody's now suddenly an, 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 you know, an expert on the World Trade Organization. And suddenly we get this situation, like this morning, in there's, a, there's an actually hashtag going on Twitter about boycotting Morrisons, because there's a Morrisons up in somewhere like Yorkshire, which is actually stocking the Brexiteer newspaper, which is a free paper produced by the Brexit Party, which they put into their shop alongside the New European, which represents the other side. We've got this kind of madness going on where people are literally making it impossible for others to have a, an opposing point of view. Exactly, and I think you've got people in the media, such as one person I can think of is a sort of high priest of snowflakes who's become deranged mm. uh, by Brexit. Yeah. I won't mention it, but he is on the radio. And yes. you're, you're beating him in the ratings. I am. I'm currently taking uh, all of his listeners, so uh, don't, don't mention his name. <laughs> don't mention his name. <laughs> but this idea that, uh, you know, all... All the people that voted Leave were from the North, were stupid, xenophobic, backward-looking racists. It's nonsense. Many people with degrees voted Leave. Many people who had their own businesses voted Leave. Many people A lot of in young the South, people as well, by the way. About 30% of young people under 30 voted Leave. And they didn't do it because of racism or even controlling immigration. They did it because they want the UK to be once again a globally-facing... Um, outward-looking, parliamentary, sovereign democracy. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Absolutely right. Stuart Jackson is here with his former Conservative MP, Special Advisor David Davies. I'll ask you about his letter to The Times coming up in a little while. But coming up next, we're going to be joined by Sir Roger Gale, a Conservative MP for North Thanet. He's a supporter of Jeremy Hunt. The big debate is tonight right here in News UK's building. Uh, it's between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt for 10 Downing Street. That's the prize, and it's live right here on Talk Radio tonight from 7. The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. We are the my friends. We keep on fighting to the end. We are the champions. We are the champions. 
I never thought I'd get excited about a game of cricket, I have to say, but it was wonderful, wasn't it? I mean, if you can't enjoy watching that game of cricket yesterday and see uh, the absolute kind of most tense cricket match of all time, I think even, even people who know cricket, former cricketers I was listening to last night on the radio driving back up to London, they were saying, this is the greatest game of cricket I have ever seen. It was absolutely extraordinary. Uh, now, I'd like to say uh, we will get the same kind of fireworks tonight here at News UK uh, and live with The Sun and Talk Radio, Boris Johnson versus Jeremy Hunt. Uh, it's a debate. There's going to be an audience. There's going to be live questions being fired in. Uh, we've got Stuart Jackson with us, who's a Boris supporter in the studio. So Roger Gale now is going to join us, uh, Conservative MP for North Thanet, supports Jeremy Hunt. So Roger, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much for joining us. Now, does Jeremy Hunt have a hope in hell of getting into Downing Street? And if he doesn't, will he still be in the Cabinet, do you think? Absolutely, yes to so both questions. But first, he's um, making tremendous headway. Is he? And Yes, absolutely he is. I was at a hustings last week in Maidstone. It was actually no contest. You saw people going in saying, oh, well, yes, we're, we're backing Boris, yeah. and coming out saying we're not. Now, there's a popular belief, which is completely false, that most of the ballot papers are already in, so it doesn't make any difference, does it? But the fact of the matter is most of the ballot papers are not already in. People are actually waiting to hear the hustings on the media and in person and then making up their minds. And those people, and there are many of them, are coming down very heavily in favour of Jeremy Hunt. For why? Because he's winning the argument. Do you think that it's all about people that either like or dislike Boris Johnson more than it is about whether they want Jeremy Hunt in Downing Street? There clearly is an element of personality in this, and Mr Johnson is regarded as the conference clown, the, the darling of the warm-up, you know, the person who makes people laugh. And all of those things may be true, but that's not what you're looking for in a prime minister, and particularly not what you're looking for in a prime minister at one of the most serious times in our nation's history, if we're honest. Oh, and which arguments specifically do you think Jeremy Hunt is winning? I think basically what he is doing is saying, one... I want to get a deal. I believe a deal that can is available if we approach it the right way. I want to put forward a pat platform of people that in will include the ERG, will include the DUP, will include the left of the Conservative Party, in order that I can convince Brussels that we can get this through the House of Commons, because that's the crucial matter. At the moment, nothing's changed. The arithmetic hasn't changed. It doesn't matter whether it's Mr Johnson or Jeremy Hunt. Um, it looks as though what Mr Johnson will do is waste two months and then say, well, we've got to get out on the 31st and that's it, hard Brexit, finish. But the House of Commons is very unlikely and will find ways of preventing a hard Brexit. So the best chance that the Brexiteers have got actually is to back Jeremy Hunt. Jeremy has made it absolutely plain that um, if push comes to shove and there really is no deal available, then it will have to be no deal because that's what Britain voted for. But what he's not going to do is be doctrinaire about the 31st of October. And I've seen the pledge with Mr Johnson's signature on it. They were holding it up and waving it around at the hustings the other night. Now, what happens if when the 31st comes and goes? The answer to that is, of course, there will have to be a general election. And there aren't many people who want a general election at the moment, and actually it would be a distraction anyway. What we need to do is get Brexit done and dusted and move forward. But what you've just described is Theresa May's policy for the last two years, isn't it? And she got absolutely nowhere with it. No, it isn't, because the difference is that Jeremy's indicated he wants to put forward a team of people that will convince Brussels that with some renegotiation, 
we can get this through the House of Commons. Now, I'm not going to pretend this is going to be easy. It's been intractable <laughs> up until now. That wouldn't now. be wise. I, look, I voted to leave three times. All these ardent Brexiteers voted to remain, curiously enough. They voted not to get the deal through. Well, no, they voted not to leave on a basis which they thought was not actually leaving, well, which we is not have, quite We, the same we thing. could have been out of the European Union on March 30, uh, 31st if enough people had voted. No, we would have been still in a customs union, surely, which no, we wouldn't would, be no, out. We, no, we wouldn't. No, we wouldn't. Uh, that, that's, I mean, that's completely fallacious. We wouldn't have been in the customs union. It was actually probably the best deal that's available. The, the big issue, of course, was the Northern Ireland backstop. That has to be addressed in some form or another. Jeremy Hunt thinks he can do it. I don't think, Jeremy, I don't think Mr Johnson can negotiate with Brussels at all, and I'm not even convinced that he wants to. He may not, but, but I mean, that may not be the way forward, because are, they've, been but, they've been telling us for the last well, three years that they're not negotiating anymore, and they won't negotiate anymore, go, and that's the end of that. Go back to your initial question. You said, why do I think people are swinging to... Jeremy no, Hunt. I asked you which arguments he was winning, and he doesn't. Yeah. I don't, I don't well, think well, anyone's well, winning said, any no, arguments. He's, no, he's won that argument, but he's also winning the arguments about the future of the country, because he has proved to be highly successful under very difficult circumstances. A Secretary of State for Health. Well, I don't think and, people in the NHS would call his tenure successful. Uh, not all of them would, but the fact of the matter is, in terms of the job that he had to do and taking the National Health Service forward and getting more funding for it and saving lives, which is not just about the junior doctors, it's about the whole package. In those terms, he was highly successful. So what you're matching is somebody who succeeded as a Secretary of State for Health is succeeding in restoring the damaged reputation of the country overseas a legacy that was bequeathed to him by his predecessor, who happened to be one Mr. Johnson, and he's putting things right. And when people look at it cold, cold hard fact, they see on the one hand, as I said, the Conference Warm-Up Act, and they see on the other hand, somebody who's actually getting things done and is going to get things done for Britain. Well, I'd love to believe you, Sir Roger, but I'm looking at a poll that was done at the weekend for Opinium, Opinium and the Observer, in which it says... That regarding Brexit, 69% of Tory voters believe Johnson can get out uh, by the 31st of October. Uh, and also 53% believe that they would cast a vote for Boris Johnson against 29% who would choose Jeremy Hunt. So I'm not sure where all these numbers are coming from. Well, you're basing about. that on one poll. What we're looking at... Well, have you got a is... poll that can say something no, what we're looking What we're looking at is the feedback that we're getting from the hustings from across the country in terms of the Tory party members. Now, we do have to remember, of course, that this electorate is not representative of anything very much, if we're honest. It is 160,000 people who are, by and large, white, middle-aged, middle-class, um, who don't represent even those who otherwise vote Conservative, never mind the broader electorate. So, well, these it, are members it, of the Tory party. Yeah, I know, and they're, the, and they're the people who are going to vote. Now, are you I saying went, the Tory party is out went, of touch with the country? I, I'm, so what I'm saying to you is I went to one of those meetings the other night, on um, Friday night, and uh, what I saw on Thursday night, I'm sorry. And what I saw was people going in with one mindset and coming out with another. That's the effect that we've perceived from the television hustings, from programmes like the one that you're broadcasting and are going to broadcast. Given a choice between two people, one of whom has a proven track record of success politically, 
Well, you see, that's again, that's a judgment call. I wouldn't say he's got a programme of, of, of success at all. I wouldn't say that. He also was with uh, Theresa May's cabinet all the way. He also voted to remain in the European Union at the referendum. So, I mean, you know, there's all sorts of arguments you can make on behalf of Jeremy Hunt. I'm simply putting the ones that are from the opposite side. Well, you can make those arguments till you're blue in the face. Yeah, but mine are all facts and yours are just no, sort of suggestions. Not, no, no, yours are not facts. Well, he did vote remain. That's a fact, OK? Yes, sir, he yes, was in Theresa yes, May's yes, cabinet. Yes, That's a fact. Yes, He fine. did follow round the cabinet ministerial responsibility and back Theresa May's uh, withdrawal agreement. Fact. Right. I voted to remain. I've backed Theresa May's deal. But I've also understood, as Jeremy has, that the British people, whether any of us like it or not, voted to leave the European Union. Jeremy Hunt believes, I think rightly, which is why I'm backing, one of the reasons I'm backing him, I believe that he thinks that he can get a deal through if anybody can. Now, it is a big if. I don't question that for one moment. The rest of the people that you're talking about, the people who you say believe that Mr. Johnson will get us out I question whether it'll be on the 31st of October, but we'll see. He'll have three months. Well, it's and, a poll result. It's simple. That's all it is. Well, no, what's important is whether we leave the European Union in the way that the British people have right. decided they want to leave. Now, Jeremy Hunt has made it perfectly plain he's committed himself to that. Yes, he was a member of Theresa May's cabinet. Yes, he fought his corner for all sorts of things within that cabinet. I know the man very well. And I don't back people lightly. I back people because I believe they can do the job. And I don't think, I'm afraid, that Mr Johnson can do mm. the job. And I do believe that Jeremy Hunt, if anybody can get this job done, can do it. Okay. It well, listen, may be that this ends up with a general election. It may well be. So, Roger, thank you very much indeed for your time. I wish you all the best and uh, hopefully your candidate will do as well as he can. But you still don't, I'm afraid, have any facts for me that prove Jeremy Hunt can do the job. Thank you very much indeed. So, Roger Gale, Conservative MP for North Thanet. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, when police chiefs start warning newspaper editors that bad things might happen if they start publishing things that the police chiefs don't want them to publish, it's always a bit of a recipe for a disaster. I'm joined now by Lucy Fisher, defence editor for The Times. Lucy, very good morning to you. Good morning. I can't imagine your editor, John Witherow, being terribly impressed with Mr Basu's statement over the weekend. Well, I'm sure editors across Fleet Street were just holding his statement in absolute scorn. Mm. It was interesting to me, after that statement he initially made on Friday, he was forced to row back and clarify it on Saturday, saying... Of course, sir, he had no intention of blocking stories that were in the public interest, right. but that he'd received legal advice that uh, journalists who published uh, material that they knew was bound by the Official Secrets Act could be um, committing an offence. Well, bizarrely, we've also had Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General, coming out and saying, actually, what he does know is that there has been no breach of the Official Secrets Act. So what we're dealing with here is, is perhaps confidential information, but not information which is in somehow uh, in a, in a danger to national security. Absolutely. And I think when you look at the substance of the diplomatic leaks we've seen published, um, they didn't really um, tell us anything new no. that we didn't already know. The principle is still important, but it's a case of embarrassment for the government rather than, as you say, a breach of national security. And the police investigation, strangely, has been said to have not been asked for by the number 10 Downing Street. So the police have clearly decided themselves that they want to do an investigation. Presumably, number 10 will do their own investigation and the Foreign Office will do their own investigation inside of 
their own offices, if you like, to see who's responsible. So, so which of the two takes precedence? Well, it's a very good question, and I think there's a severe lack of clarity at the minute. I do think there is a huge impetus politically to find the leaker. Um, it is incredibly damaging to the special relationship between the US and the UK that these diplomatic cables have been published. It undermines the principle of trust uh, and confidenti confidentiality that governs the use of these diplomatic cables and could have a chilling effect on ambassadors across the world reporting back to the UK. Because mm, we've heard there's something similar happened in uh, Singapore, but we're not quite sure precisely what. Let's talk to Nigel West, European editor of the World Intelligence Review uh, and intelligence historian. Nigel, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. What, what do you make of this, uh, this kind of rather odd situation where you've got the police investigating on no, the one hand... No, there's nothing odd. There's nothing odd. And I'm afraid, with respect to both of you, you have completely misunderstood the situation. OK, well, why don't you explain it to us? First of all, there has been a breach of security. Classified documents have been passed to an unauthorised individual. That, on the face of it, appears to be a breach of the Official Secrets Act. There is no issue relating to public interest unless there is a prosecution. The security service is automatically involved at any time there is a breach of security in relation to classified information. There is no quality test in the sense of uh, your other guest, uh, Lucy. Lucy, said that um, it was incredibly damaging. Well, that may or may not be the case, but it is a matter for the security service and the police, of course, will conduct their own investigation yes. where there is a, a pretty obvious and pretty public breach of the Official Secrets well, Act. Well, indeed, but the Attorney-General, I'm afraid, doesn't agree with you, Nigel. He says there hasn't been a breach of the Official Secrets Act and therefore there's no need for anybody to be prosecuted under the Official Secrets Act. There may have been confidential information taken. It might but even that, be a case that, of that's stealing still classified. it. That's still classified and that is a breach of the well, Official well, Secrets well, Act. Well, the, I, I, the, you're the saying Attorney the Attorney-General doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe. The Attorney-General has to give his fiat before there is a prosecution under the Official Secrets Act, and he, if the, the Attorney-General has already declared there has been no breach of the law, then that is a matter for him, and that will, of course, compromise any future prosecution. The leaker must be feeling very pleased if that is exactly as has been reported. But Nigel, I feel you are perhaps conflating two issues here, one of which is around the leaker and whether they have committed um, an offence and the they right have. of the press to publish that information, which is an entirely different matter. No, it's not. Uh, to, if you receive classified information and you are not an authorised person, then there is a potential breach of the Official Secrets Act. It may well be that you can claim... Uh, that it is in the public interest, and although that is not in statute law, you will be aware that in the case of, for example, Clive Ponting, he was able to argue that in front of a jury, and a perverse jury acquitted him. In exactly the same way, Catherine Gunn uh, had a particular view when she made disclosures from GCHQ, and at the 11th hour, the prosecution decided not to offer evidence on the basis that she would claim uh, public interest and that would persuade a jury. I think there are other caveats as well, including whether the recipient of classified information realises that it is bound by the Official Secrets Act. Well, that's but, nonsense. I mean, 
that's not nonsense. That's, that, that has a that's within the that's within the terms of the Official Secrets Act. But yes. I think we're becoming increasingly legalistic in this discussion. I think you well, know, it, it the important point that's here the is about the central the tenet of the freedom of the press and the idea that the Assistant Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police has been threatening editors with potentially committing an offence is he, an abomination. He's done his duty. He has reminded editors, uh, as indeed their own legal advisers will have told them, be very careful if somebody hands you documents that are clearly classified. Well, I mean, I th it, it's plain as a pike staff. Well, it's been interpreted um, uh, as a worrying intervention, and um, you'll have but seen that's, David Davis's intervention, his letter to The Times today, in which he says that Neil Basu should be stripped of his role investigating the leak, uh, and that, you know, it sh he should be replaced by an officer who puts a free the, press the, the before the state's and reputation. The of the media. So the media know best. The media decide what... No, but the media should not be threatened well, no, the, by the police. The media, Nigel, even you would agree, surely, are here to protect the public from uh, officials who behave with arrogance and who think that they know best. And the problem is here, they, it maybe, seems to me that the foreign... Excuse me. It seems to me that the foreign office doesn't know how to control its own employees. It seems to me that the ambassador was very unwise to say some of the things that he said in the way that he said them. Okay, and, well, it seems, and it take, seems to me that picking let's out... The, no, hang on. Well, hang on. I haven't finished yet. Picking out newspapers, <laughs> picking out newspapers and the media as some kind of villain of the piece here is not the case. The offence was committed, if there was an offence, in Washington, D.C., inside of the Foreign Office. And if the government can't run the Foreign Office, then I suggest they get somebody who can. OK, well, let's take that in three stages. First okay. of all, uh, the ambassador was simply doing what every other diplomat... There is no such thing as a private discussion with a diplomat. You know from WikiLeaks that every diplomat from whatever country automatically cultivates sources and reports on all private conversations. Sure. So the ambassador is doing his job. That's what he's paid to do. Nobody's to suggesting he his, isn't. His, sorry? Nobody is suggesting that he okay. has somehow well, stepped well, out of line. Well, I, well, I, well I'm, I'm talking about certain things that have been reported since the, the leaks, right, in which he has been uh, behaving in a way which some people have suggested was slightly less than ambassadorial. Well, that may or may not be uh, the, the case. But in regard to the leaks, the second issue, which, of course, is the really important one, is that there is a mole, there is a, a leaker who has supplied this information, and this will be the subject, or is already the subject, of a, an MI5 and a policing parallel inquiry. If Isabel Oakeshott used her cell phone to make any rendezvous or, or make arrangements to receive the documents, he's, he or she is toast and will be identified. The third issue is whether or not the press have committed an offence by reporting the issue. Now, there are, again, there are two judgments to be made there. First of all, should Isabel Oakeshott have published this material once it had been handed to her? And second, and that's a matter of public interest, and obviously huge damage has been done, as uh, Lucy has described, to our relationship with the American administration, and the second issue I'm not sure that's is true, the legality of it. And the legality is, is pretty straightforward. And any journalist who doesn't understand that they're taking a risk 
receiving classified information is in for a surprise. Oh, I don't think that that's the issue at all, Nigel. I just think it's unwise, as Lucy does. It's, I mean, I think all journalists and all editors are aware that there are sometimes risks in publishing things. There can be legal risks. You can be taking, you can be putting yourself out on a limb by making an accusation about somebody. That you, you could be threatened with with a libel suit. I mean, yes, of course. But but the difference between newspapers knowing that and being instructed by the police is a different is are two different things. And I think that's Lucy's point. Well, I think that David Davis put it well when he accused Neil Basu of straying well beyond his brief. Yeah. I think it's not for uh, individual police officers to try and encourage editors to hand back leaked material yeah. or source material to I mean, the you'll remember, government. Nigel, you'll well, remember... that's precisely the... what they should do. But you'll remember it's the spy... disagree. stolen material, uh, and, of course, to hand it back, the reason why the media are reluctant to do so is because when Tam Diel passed back the documents uh, leaked to him by Clive Ponting they identified him as the source of the leak. Right, exactly. And also, it's not the, the duty of the, uh, the, the newspaper or the, the broadcaster to, to be the kind of servant of the government. That's not what we do. The bottom line for me... No, as but well, in the legal case, they do have to adduce... Well, you'll remember... If the subpoenaed, you'll, they you'll, have to adduce evidence. Well, you'll remember the spycatcher case, Nigel, I'm sure, when Margaret Thatcher tried to ban the publication of a book in this country and, in the end, lost that particular case. I, now, I, that I'm book, sorry, that's, that's not true. But that's exactly what did not happen. Well, well tell me and what a, did and happen. As a, and as a matter of fact, the government won the case. Well, the book was... The judge lifted the ban on the publication of, of, of what was in the book. Yes, but uh, that is not precisely what happened legally. The House of Lords confirmed the lifelong duty of confidentiality owed by intelligence personnel to the government. So the, the government actually won the spycatcher case. What it lost was the opportunity in the United States, not in the British courts, but in the United States, to, to ban a book where there was no written contract of employment. Yes. There was an implied contract of employment with Peter Wright. Yes, but the book was sold in the United Kingdom, wasn't it? Eventually, Eventually yes. Yes, so they lost. Uh, well... They, they never tried in the British courts to ban the, the sale of, of the book. I was involved. I can, I can Yeah, no, I know that. that. But, but, I mean, there's no point in us arguing about the niceties of it. The bottom line is they tried to prevent the publication of a book in this country and they lost the ability to do that because they got it wrong. No, they, they lost uh, the case to ban the book, or rather the right to publish in Australia. They couldn't bring a case in the United States... And the book was, there was no attempt to stop the book being published in the United Kingdom. The issue was the lifelong duty of confidentiality, which the House of Lords eventually upheld, and it remains the law today. Okay. I think um, uh, you're right, Nigel, that it was an incredibly complex case over Spycatcher, but the thing that I think is interesting today is the, with the advent of the internet, people with material that they want to see come out in the public domain can easily just dump it on the internet um, with, a, with a degree of anonymity. And I think that um, a move to um, disparage the press handling it with a far greater degree of responsibility, um, you know, misses the point that people, if they want information mm. to be out there, there's ways of doing it that bypass having mature, responsible yeah. people with experience of... of well, Stuart, Stuart Jackson was in no, here earlier. Really. I completely agree with you. And interestingly, many people in the intelligence community welcomed the advent of WikiLeaks, because this was potentially an opportunity 
to provide information a little bit like a pressure valve to provide a leak without damaging a particular the, the source's integrity or career. The problem that went wrong with, with WikiLeaks was, of course, that Julian Assange went and solicited material from existing sources like Chelsea Manning. Mm -hmm. And that's where the process was unfortunately corrupted. And those who make the argument that Julian Assange got locked up as a result of that, uh, where the person involved in this may not, would suggest, and as, like, as, as the Attorney General would say, Nigel, uh, that there were official secrets leaked to WikiLeaks, in which WikiLeaks then sort of, um, you know, distributed, if you like. Whereas if the Attorney General of this country is saying that thus far none of this is a breach of the Official Secrets Act, then I don't see how anybody's going to get prosecuted. Well, I would like to see the, the precise text that Geoffrey Cox has released, but it is plain as a pike stock, is it not, that if you have a classified document, if he's saying that, that this material was unclassified, then that'll be quite a surprise. But if it's a classified document, then there is, prima facie, a breach of the Act. If, on the other hand, we are simply talking about somebody who leaked unclassified information, there is a problem there, because if they're leaking that kind of material, potentially they may compromise more important information. Mm. And, and frankly, even if this wasn't classified, then it still had, as Lucy has said, incredible damage. And knowing what you know about the uh, security services, Nigel, do you think that anyone will be caught for this? Yes, leakers uh, are, are always identified. The issue is whether or not there is any evidence that can be adduced in the criminal court. Uh, but I say again, if Isabel Oakeshott had used her cell phone to make any of the arrangements to receive this information, uh, then her source will be identified. OK. Well, it's a fascinating case. Nigel, thanks for your time. Nigel West, the uh, European editor of the World Intelligence Review and intelligence historian. Uh, he certainly told us, Lucy, but um, you know, I guess we can agree to differ with him. If the Attorney General says it's not a breach of the Official Secrets Act, I take Nigel's point that if it's an, a secret document, then almost anything in it, including the date... Uh, and the time it was written and the name underneath the signature is part of the Official Secrets Act. But technically, if it's relatively, as you said, kind of, you know, not very interesting information or nothing particularly secret, then is it? Well, um, I do... N Nigel was correct, and I wasn't meaning to say that the substance has any bearing mm. on the legality of the release of it. I, I was merely making the point that it's damaging because uh, it, sh it says publicly that we have been undermining President Trump, even though that would probably have been obvious from the pretty consensual um, orthodoxy yeah. uh, among the commentariat, um, foreign policy experts in the UK. I do think, um, as to that question of legality, um, it, it's unclear to me exactly what the status of this is. I'm not totally convinced mm. there is um, clarity. What I am uh, sure about is the fact that uh, the threat by Neil Basu the Assistant Commissioner to the Metropolitan Police, to the media over the weekend, um, has gone down uh, like a bucket of cold sick. Yes. And um, I wasn't surprised to see him clarifying his statement on Saturday uh, and seeing such a wealth of um, opprobrium come out in response to it. Sure. Lucy, thank you very much indeed for your time. I shall let you go back to your proper job now. Lucy Fisher, Defence Correspondent for The Times. Uh, that was Nigel West talking to us as well. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. I saw the crescent.
This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham, 03444991000. So many of you very kindly sending me suggestions about the imitation game. Apparently it's a very good film uh, and I should watch it. Uh, people are also saying, I thought Susan didn't have a TV, so what on earth is she watching the DVD on? Well, she could be watching it on a PC, couldn't she? She could be watching it on a computer. Steve says, what a nightmarish dystopian Quentin Wilson describes. We've slowly reached this on the back of the misconception that growth is everything. When people are caught up on a daily basis on all this growth, growth, growth myth, they become blinded to their own foolishness or binded to their own foolishness. I'm not sure about that. Uh, Peg says, how about towing a giant bar of soap to the High Court and watch the filthy crochet-clad ne'er-do-wells scattered to the four corners of the home counties? This is about the Extinction Rebellion uh, protest, of course. And Ryan says, take the boat out to the Thames and make the planks walk the plank. Uh, that's very true. And lots of you also saying Bletchley Park is a great place to go, including Samantha, uh, who says Bletchley's a really fantastic place to visit. We took my son twice as he was growing up. I mean, all of the brains of these people and the geese that laid the golden eggs and never cackled, according to Churchill. Let's go back to the phone zone and talk to Ian, uh, who's in Evesham. Hello, Ian. Yes, hi, Mike. How are you doing? Very good, sir. Yeah, very well indeed. What do you want to say? Yeah, I just wanted to expand a little bit on what Stuart Jackson was saying earlier about the sport this week. Yes. Absolutely phenomenal performances all round. Um, but my point was that when you look at the dedication and commitment of everybody involved in the Wimbledon Championships and the, the cricket team and um, Lewis Hamilton, you yeah. kind of expect that. But I think the bar was set by Gareth Southgate and our Lionesses. Yes, very much um, so. I mean, would you when when you say Gareth Southgate and the Lionesses, do you mean Gareth Southgate last year and the Lionesses this year? Well, no. Uh, well, both. Um, I mean, their attitude and professionalism through the World Cup this year was absolutely outstanding, particularly in the face of the intimidation they had from Cameroon. Yes. Um, and even when the, the individual players were being interviewed, they were very keen to. Um, bring in the rest of the team and emphasise that it was a team performance yeah. and not any any individual. And when you compare that to the um, quite odious uh, video that Megan Rapinoe posted on social media... Yeah, well, there's been quite a lot of um, opprobrium pointed in her direction. I don't know if you, you see the one of her signing the ball for the kid. Mm, yeah. Where she's not even looking at him. Yeah, um, it was the one. The one that I particularly disliked was the one of her holding the, the women's World Cup, pointing at herself, saying, oh, yeah. this is for her. "She deserves this." Saying, she "I deserve it." Yeah. Um, but it, that all seems to stem from Colin Kaepernick and and his activist antics. And it's just nice to see that the the British side of things um, just distances itself from that sort of attitude which is how sport should be. It shouldn't yes. be political at all. No, it shouldn't be, and I think that's the mistake that's been made. But I'll tell you what I found also very uh, rewarding and interesting about this weekend, Ian, thanks very much indeed uh, for your call, is that we celebrated sport and there wasn't actually any football involved. And football, of course, people see very much as the national game in this country. Um, but to have people celebrating the Grand Prix, the, the tennis and the, the, the cricket at the same time, and having that incredible sort of um, mix of emotions and the tenseness and watching the, the Wimbledon final, even if you don't have um, you know any particular inkling for one of the two players to win, whether it's Federer or whether it's Djokovic, it was an incredibly intense game, um, made even more intense by the fact that at the same time the cricket was going on. Let's talk to Mim Davis now, uh, who's the sports minister, of course, uh, in this government. And Mim, I think it's a, a great day to be, I'm going to say British, because um, it's all about Britain, isn't it? 
Absolutely. And what a weekend it was. Um, a real treat for, for so many people and something for everyone, whether you uh, like the F1, whether you were a tennis fan or a cricket fan. And some people found themselves cricket fans who weren't expected to, to be so uh, at the start of the week. And it was simply amazing. I think it, it's such an event that when you watch it, I mean, I was watching Wimbledon and I, then as it got closer and closer in the cricket, I started flipping backwards and forwards like everybody in the nation, I think, was doing. And, and my kids were captivated by cricket. One of them is interested in cricket. The other one's not particularly. But they were, they couldn't look away from it because it was so compelling. It was the most incredible event of, of sport I think I've ever seen. Yeah, I found myself in a pub in Silverstone. <laughs> I had been at the F1. Right. Um, so Friday was uh, Liverpool for the netball. We've got the World Cup. We're hosting it there. And we've got interest there for, for Scotland, for Northern Ireland and for, for England. Saturday, I was at Wimbledon enjoying the tennis um, uh, for the afternoon. And then uh, Sunday was at um, the That's F1. That's a great was... job you've got there, Bim, I have to say. I was absolutely spoilt for choice and it was absolutely brilliant. And it'd been a really important week for Silverstone as well. So we had the Secretary of State and the Prime Minister at the cricket. So we uh, were spreading ourselves around a bit and I found myself um, still in the pub um, waiting to try and leave uh, to see what on earth was happening. And it was absolutely exhilarating. What was great, exactly as you described, Mike, if there was people involved in sport in a way that you wouldn't normally expect. People right. young, old, all different backgrounds, all different communities, absolutely loving the fact that we were winning a World Cup. I do hasten to add that the women's cricket team have already got one, so it's nice to see the men catch up. Yes, no, absolutely right. And what about the fact that it was on Channel 4? Because I think, you know, we've, we've congratulated Sky earlier today because mm. they gave and sort of donated more or less their coverage of the, of the Cricket World Cup final to Channel 4. So a lot more people mm. will have now seen it. Uh, as a result of that being on terrestrial TV. I mean, should there be more of, of, of that going on? Would you push for more terrestrial television coverage of sport? So I think what Sky has done with the whole of this tournament on our shores has done a brilliant job in showcasing it. And don't forget, people around the globe have been watching great sport on our shores. We've had, um, you know, a billion people tuning in for some of the matches. But you're absolutely right. You've got to strike a, a, a balance when it comes to everyone being able to tune in when, when we're doing well. And that's what sport's got to do. It's got to find that uh, balance between investment into the grassroots and, of course, visibility. And, of course, we've got our listed events which we do keep uh, under review but I think what Sky did and we also saw with the Champions League final with BT Sport when they know there's a point of national interest that kind of water cooler moment that absolutely they've got to work as a broadcaster with the sport to make sure we get the, the widest coverage possible. What this will have done to participation in cricket I really look forward to seeing and this weekend where we had so much going on the net ball, the, uh, the uh, tennis and of course everything going on in the cricket really showed actually we're really good at holding sports events here. We've got the Commonwealth Games that we're hosting in Birmingham in 2022 which will be across the whole of the West Midlands and we'll hope the whole of the country will be involved in them. That will be 10 years on from London 2012. So this has been brilliant following the Women's World Cup where everyone got involved and we had 11 million people having a look in the evening. The difference is, you know, actually uh, when you've got an hour and a half game that you can show in an evening when everyone's not at work, it's a really good tune 
tuning point. So I think Sky working with Channel 4 yesterday meant that everyone could be part yeah. of it. And what about in schools as well? Because you'd like to see mm. schools kind of picking up on the enthusiasm. If kids are picking up cricket bats and, and putting on the pads and playing around in the garden, you'd like to maybe see schools going more towards that. I know that we've talked in the past, uh, not you and I, but, but me and lots of other people about, you know, school facilities not being all that great. Mm. Sometimes the money isn't there. But, you know, these, these are things that I think we should really grasp and, and, and push on with, aren't they? Yeah, so two points, Mike, on this, and thank you for, for bringing in the schools and the, the participation and the inspiration. I think the ECB and the ICC have reached over a million children through through the World Cup, through the All-Stars Cricket, which they've done alongside this. So I was up in Cardiff at uh, Grangetown, one of the um, more deprived areas just outside uh, where the ground was, um, playing sport with uh, youngsters who were getting their first taste of cricket, and that was brilliant. We've got over 700 thousand kids who've been part of the program alongside the cricket and there were 12,000 tickets given uh, to the event for school children and so with that would have meant that about 127,000 children in all have, have, have gone to the World Cup matches uh, in terms of with their family or with their schools so that's been brilliant and yesterday we launched our updated school sport action plan and also activity plan so this is working across the Department of Health and Department of Education and my department. So I look after after-school, holidays, weekends, activity, and, of course, work with schools who have the kids 36 weeks a year. So it's vital that we get activity built into our youngsters' lives. So we launched that plan yesterday, working alongside the Department of Health to open up school sports facilities, to work with our governing bodies, to get physical literacy onto the curriculum, and it'll be looked at more roundly from September via offset in terms of what does a good school look like and how do you build activity into the day so if parents and carers can pick up on this on the time that they have with their children not just think about what food they're eating and how much screen time they're having how much time they're getting out and about how much play and fun they have because they're more likely to to be fit and healthy and active if they get that play and they get that fun and the chance to play cricket more girls than ever my daughters actually play it instead of rounders now there's a great opportunity with this summer of sport with the Solheim Cup coming up later this year with the women's ashes as well so much going on for our youngsters to be inspired by and as you say it's more than football football absolutely playing its part but all sports getting a chance to step up this summer and we got the open coming up as well haven't we in Port Rush so you got golf I know, as well I which is going to be another great one Absolutely. I was due to be there on, on Thursday, but I'm, um, we've, we've got to stay in Parliament, so I've got to uh, make sure <laughs> I, I'm here. So I'm there Ooh. on Saturday. And then I'm Can't hoping you just send that... your vote in by proxy or something? <laughs> Absolutely not. But then we're hoping there'll be some home nation action in Liverpool uh, for, for the netball for the, for the final on Sunday. So it really is a, a, a time to absolutely engage with sport, enjoy what we do really well. I think our country should be very confident that our home nations do a great job when it comes to representing us. And, of course, we've got the Rugby World Cup later this year in Tokyo. And next year, don't forget, buy your lottery tickets because we need to fund <laughs> our athletes. They'll be out in Tokyo next year for the Olympics. For the Olympics, Olympic yeah. Games. Amazing. Yeah. Right, now I'm going to ask you one final question, Mim. Mm. Uh, are you Team Boris or Team Hunt? 
Well, I was supported Sajid Javid, but I am now backing Boris. Um, he's got a good pedigree when it comes to delivering sport. You would have seen that in London 2012. I would like our party to get behind a new leader to refresh and renew. We've got a lot of work to do beyond uh, Brexit, and one of those is the Commonwealth Games Bill, which at the moment I'm putting together. We need to get that ready so that we can have this sport in our shores in uh, 2022. So I'd like my party in this country to focus on what we're good at, get our confidence back, get our mojo back, and I think that's backing Boris. Great stuff, Mim. Thank you very much indeed. Mim Davis, Sports Minister there, uh, backing Boris, backing Team GB, backing the England cricket team, backing uh, anybody who comes from these aisles playing in the open at Port Rush over in uh, Northern Ireland this coming weekend. There's all sorts going on. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.